Welcome to another episode of Emerging Environments. Today on the podcast, we welcome Dr. Jody Hilty. Jody is the president and chief scientist of the Yellowstone to Yukon Initiative, which you'll hear us refer to as Y2Y in our conversation. Jody is a wildlife corridor ecologist and conservationist with over 20 years of experience managing large-scale conservation programs. She has co-edited or been lead author on four books, the most recent of which is titled Corridor Ecology, Linking Landscapes for Biodiversity Conservation and Climate Adaptation, which was published in 2019. She currently serves as Deputy Chair of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature Connectivity Committee. She was born and raised in the Rocky Mountains and has a deep-rooted passion for protecting the species and the ecosystems in the Y2Y region. With Jody, we talked about the scope of Y2Y, her contributions to international planning efforts for ecological connectivity, and the nature of interjurisdictional and multi-organizational conservation initiatives. Y2Y is such a great organization to talk about because they have such an expansive vision for conservation and they have so many linkages with all sorts of other organizations in that region. They really are an exemplar of how to think big about conservation and how to use science to spur action and support from the public. So please enjoy our talk with Dr. Jody Hilty. Hi, Jody. Thanks so much for joining us today. Before we get into um, our conversation about Y2Y, we'd love to hear a little bit about you and your career path. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you became interested in, in conservation and kind of a, a career in conservation. Well, sure. Uh, I think for me, probably conservation started very early. I was born in the Rockies and grew up in the mountains. Um, and I literally spent my childhood riding horses through the mountains, looking for things like mountain lion kills. So Wow. <laughs> it was probably a pretty early obsession. You know, I went on to, to graduate school where I got some skills and tools. And in particular, I learned something called GIS, which is Geographic Information Systems. And what that tool allows people like me to do is to do sort of spatial planning and analysis to understand maybe where there might be potential conflicts between people and particular populations of animals. And so uh, when I got out of graduate school, it wasn't too long after that I ended up living in Zambia, working on oh, wow. a community-based wildlife management program there. Hmm. And, um, and that was very much about mapping actual real conflicts um, working with village scouts to understand what kind of ground they were covering when they were looking for things like poachers mm -hmm. and where the distributions of animals were that they were seeing that we were looking to make sure were protected for this program. Um, and that was just amazing. The diversity of life in that country was truly inspiring and the dedication of these village scouts that were going out to protect what they understood were part of their livelihoods, these wildlife was just so cool. Um, and so when I came back from Africa, I knew that I wanted to work on these sort of programs that integrated both communities and people into conservation. 
And I, I ended up working for a group called the Wildlife Conservation Society, helping them run their Africa program for a few years and then realized I needed more education. So I went back and got my PhD in landscape ecology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I specialized in wildlife corridors. How do animals get from one place that they need to be uh, and to another place, such as for migrations or to find food, to find mates? Um, and that's pretty much been my passion ever since. Mm-hmm. So that's my history in a a, a thumbnail. Yeah. Cool. Well, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative, where you are now, and um, and the importance of wildlife corridors and connectivity um, in conservation. Sure. So I originally joined the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative um, in the early 2000s, actually as a Y2Y board member. Mm-hmm. And I did because obviously I have wildlife corridor expertise and the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative is sort of like a mega corridor in some ways. It's really a network of protected areas and connectivity areas that are to function as a whole from one of the most intact mountain ecosystems left in North America. I then came back to Y2Y about five years ago when they were looking for a new president. And as I was considering whether this was the right job for me, I interviewed a lot of different people about their thoughts about (laughs) Y2Y. And I think there were a few things that really got me excited and keep me excited about this job. One is the mission is so cool. It's about connecting and protecting this region all the way from Wyoming, all the way to the Arctic in the Yukon Mm -hmm. so that both people and nature can thrive. And that really strikes sort of my heart. Um, And it seems to me to be one of the best ways to move forward with conservation. The second was when I was joining the organization, they had just done a 20 year review. What's happened in the 20 years since this audacious vision was created in 1993? And we've we've just updated it. So um, we're submitting a paper on 25 years. And I think what is profound to me and answers the question that I sometimes get, great that you have this big vision, but how do you actually, does it really make a difference on the ground? Mm-hmm. And it does make a difference on the ground. So you can look at lots of different measures that maybe we'll talk a little bit more about today. But having someone keep that vision and really help to focus local efforts on that most important local quarter that actually matters at the Y to Y scale is what drives forward large landscape conservation. Amazing. So that kind of ties in well with one of the questions that we had for you about sort of success stories. And you talk about kind of this 20 year review now, 25 years. It's amazing. So maybe you can point to some of the success stories in terms of maybe specific species or specific landscapes that you've seen kind of potentially be restored or maintained or conserved as a result of this Y2Y initiative. Oh, wow. (laughs) So many great stories to tell. I think I'll start us right um, at the border of Canada and the U.S. uh, Because trans-border work is sometimes really challenging to do. Mm -hmm. Y2Y has been hosting a collaborative of over 60 different groups in that region. Wow. And 
one might ask sort of why there? Well, because when the researchers were looking at grizzly bears, they, they did genetic analyses. And what they showed was that what once was a continuous population, and you wouldn't be able to see any specific genetic signals, was literally breaking up at the border into little populations. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, those populations could be delineated by the human roads and the development along the roads around it. So it's hard for animals like grizzly bears, but lots of other animals to get across those roads and successfully breed. Mm -hmm. And so we had a number of isolated populations there. So to make a long story short, a lot of work, a lot of really focused work led to the increase of a number of different wildlife corridors. So protecting land, doing coexistence work. And we also secured some core habitat in the United States. There was a population that was somewhere around 10 individuals. Today, it's about 60 individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, they introduced a bear every year, but also those bears were being kept alive, um, whereas before it was really a challenge for them. And I think the ultimate test has been a scientist, Dr. Michael Proctor, um, continued to monitor those, those grizzly bears. And they're actually using some of those corridors that, are, um, that have been conserved and are being restored. And those population numbers are going up. And it's just so exciting to see how when humans put their minds to it, how that shift can happen. Um, I do wanna talk about a second example that is also so cool. So I'm gonna take you a little bit further north in sort of the Eastern portion of British Columbia to a place called Peace River. And the West Moberly and Soto First Nations are some of the nations in that area. Those two nations, First Nations, decided to take on the restoration of mountain caribou. And this is really important because south of them, so many of the populations of mountain caribou have been disappearing. The one transborder population between the U.S. and British Columbia disappeared a few years ago, and for example. And so um, in their region of Peace River, caribou have been in great decline. So they took it upon themselves to create this vision of restoring the area. So the first thing they did was they realized they, they needed to keep the last of the caribou and the caribou populations were really, really small. And they looked around to figure out what was the best way to sort of bolster that population in the short term, recognizing that in the long term, it's really about habitat. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they created these uh, it's called a caribou maternal pen. It's way up in the windiest part of the subalpine. And they, when the caribou are about to give birth, they put them in this pen because what was happening with the science showed was that the poor caribou calves were basically all getting killed. Mm -hmm. And if we could keep them alive during that really vulnerable period that they might have a better chance. And so fast forward a number of years later, just even in the last um, three years, there were somewhere around 60 caribou. Um, and today they just came out with a new uh, newsletter last week that says that there's 101 caribou. Mm -hmm. This is 
the model, the only success story, really successful story of restoring caribou. But beyond that, the more as important as just keeping the animals alive is that they now have an agreement with the federal government, BC and these two First Nations, to create the third largest protected area, an Indigenous-led protected area in that region, Mm. um, which will require an enormous amount of restoration and continual work like a guardians program with the First Nations Mm -hmm. to really keep these caribou alive. So this is a story that is really promising. It's not done yet, but it's just so incredible. And I should say like, it's, it's a whole community's event. So they would get school children out there collecting lichen for those captive caribou to breed. And these kids are so good at collecting it. They are so fast. My colleague went out there and he was so ashamed when he came back and he barely had any of these kids had like massive amounts of it. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a really neat thing when communities lean in to care about their cultural heritage and, and including their wildlife heritage. Mm-hmm. Amazing. That's a great success story. So thinking a little bit more about indigenous led conservation and how Y2Y engages with that and interacts with that. Can you speak a little bit about, I guess, the Y2Y initiative and how that engages indigenous people and, you know, what types of synergies occur in those interactions? Yeah. Um, I would say it's evolved over time. I think we held our first indigenous We tried to bring lots of Indigenous uh, communities together in 2003 um, for for some early discussions of their vision of what Y2Y should be. There are 75 territories of Indigenous peoples crisscrossing the whole Y2Y region, Mm -hmm. and, and they are the rights holders of those territories. So in recognizing that, um, Y2Y has been working and supporting First Nations and other Indigenous peoples to realize their conservation vision. So where we have sort of shared visions, whether it's on Caribou or down in the United States, the Nez Perce are working on the Camas to Condors uh, corridor and um, have asked for some help just in facilitating getting a collaborative together to realize that vision. Or likewise, the Blackfoot Confederacy, which is a transboundary group of people between Alberta and Montana, mm. they have this incredible initiative. It's called the INI Initiative, I-I-N-N-I-I. And in their language, that means bison or buffalo. Mm. And So in their culture, as I understand it, bison are sort of the center of their universe. And so they have this amazing vision that's really holistic about bringing bison back to that landscape um, in a way that heals the landscape, heals and also heals the people. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something that we're really privileged to be able to provide some, some small support here and there as they work to realize that vision. And so I guess, I would say that the, the Y2Y approach is really um, coming to develop relationship with different Indigenous peoples. Certainly, we're a small organization, so we're not across all 75 territories, but where we can and um, working with Indigenous peoples on what their vision is and 
um, where there's a great intersection, we can really help to amplify that work or support it in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're their own government. And so they have such incredible power to realize that vision. Um, but because of the history of Indigenous peoples in both Canada and the U.S., sometimes um, realizing that power has been a struggle. And it's just mm-hmm. so exciting. Like we look at today, in about the last two years, about 14 million acres um, have been put into sort of indigenous led protected and conserved areas Mm -hmm. through agreements with the federal governments and the territorial or provincial governments and indigenous peoples. Those are still being sort of realized through the agreement process, Mm -hmm. but that's just so incredible and Mm -hmm. so important. And it's because they recognize that nature is part of their heritage and part of their culture and needs to be honored as well as we move forward in society. Yeah, I think Y2Y, it sounds like you're in an excellent position to, you know, facilitate those relationships and support, you know, those Indigenous-led projects, as as you pointed out there. I think it's fantastic. I guess, you know, maybe scaling up from that a little bit, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, I guess, the multi-organizational or sort of interjurisdictional nature of Y2Y and what are the challenge main challenges there when you're dealing with you know private land ownership in some cases is there resistance in some cases to connectivity projects <laughs> well sometimes when i'm looking at a map i just want to take a pencil and just erase all of the boundaries that we <laughs> create because you know wildlife don't actually recognize them mm-hmm. i think it is so challenging i uh, just a few weeks ago we had this wolf that was here in Banff, Wolf 2001, Mm. and it was hanging out and it was just getting ready to disperse. And and so it did. It took this huge uh, hundreds of kilometers jaunt down to Montana and uh, where it was, oh my gosh, I just saw a coyote pass my window. Sorry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But anyway, um, it, yeah, it took this big jaunt from Banff all the way down to Montana. And then it was actually legally um, killed in Montana. And I think, you know, there's two parts to this story, right? One is, wow, it's so great that this animal still has the potential and still can move such great distances in the Y2Y region. That's a story of hope. The story of challenge is that wolves are more than six times more likely to die if they step out of a protected area um, and to die by human cause. Likewise, grizzly bears, if they step out of protected areas, they are most likely going to die because of human um, human caused death, right, Mm -hmm. than any other type of death. And so that means we still have a lot of work to do um, in terms of that. How do we keep bears and wolves and other critters alive when they're crossing all of these artificial human lines? Mm -hmm. And I think um, so much of it has to do with relationship. It's Y to Y and and the 450 partners that we work with, establishing relationships with community, conversations about values and limited resources, um, and developing a deeper understanding of the value of nature. It's also those communities and, and individuals in this region or visiting this region having a connection with nature and understanding themselves and valuing that and acting on that, whether it's through voting or the way they behave in nature or these other ways. You know, I don't think 
anyone really wants to knowingly harm some pronghorn antelope or um, some other animal in the landscape. It's, but sometimes I think we just, as human beings, don't know the impacts of our behaviors. So really it's about sharing that knowledge and having those conversations and finding that common ground, whether it's with private landowners, uh, whether it's with public lands and um, some of the arguments right now that are happening, for example, in Alberta around coal mining, open pit coal mining mm. for metallurgical coal, you know, what is the greater and better good for those lands, not just now, but maybe seven generations from now. And those are really important conversations for society to have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Reflecting back on your experience in, uh, I think it was Zambia, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you feel that the lessons learned in, in that context are equally as applicable in North America, or are they sort of different beasts in terms of connectivity and, and stakeholder and organizational interactions? Oh, I love that question because <laughs> I've had a lot of discussions about this. You know, I think what happened in North America is the the model for conservation really started off on, well, we'll just have some protected areas and, and we're good. And really community-based conservation in so many ways was so much further ahead in places like Zambia and where human dependence on nature really was critical just for basic daily sustenance. Um, I so remember sitting down with um, a couple of villages and there was an argument that was happening. Well, a discussion, maybe um, <laughs> more of an argument. So a couple of families wanted to, to essentially add a village and put it in a place where there was really good hunting. Mm-hmm. And the other communities um, had been following these, these wildlife and the village scouts had been following these wildlife. And they realized that right where they were going to put that village was going to be a really, it was going to actually disrupt their wildlife. And so it was a very heated conversation, but they negotiated. They talked about why, what their reasons were on either side. And then they actually found a, a solution and those families agreed to move to a different location that was less important for wildlife. And, you know, that's basically what we're talking about in the Y2Y region as well in so many different ways is, mm-hmm. are we going to develop something here or are we not going to develop something here? Are we going to do something here? Or are we not? And what are the trade-offs that um, we're making when those decisions are, are completed? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll uh, shift gears a little bit here and ask some questions related to climate change, because that's kind of my uh, my area of expertise. And I'm interested in in knowing whether, you know, there's been any clear evidence of climate change in what you're seeing throughout the Y2Y region in terms of species migration or, or that sort of thing, and, and how important these kind of uh, wildlife corridors are in terms of climate change adaptation and, and what we're going to see in the coming decades. Yeah. Yeah. Climate change. Well, <laughs> I think um, what is pretty amazing to me is that our founding um, members of Y2Y realized in 1993 that Y2Y at its coarsest scale was a solution for climate change adaptation because 
what the scientists say is given that climate change is happening, if we want to help biodiversity, animals and plants be able to survive this rapidly changing climate, we might need to have bigger protected areas and more of them. Mm-hmm. We need them to be connected and you know, having topographic diversity can be really important. And so why do I at the coarsest scale really encompasses these things? It also has a few refugia um, that were identified during past climate change events, like in the McKinsey Mountains, like in the Columbia Headwaters. And those are places that scientists like you, Karen, <laughs> can probably tell us a lot more about why they were refugia and why they're likely to be refugia this time. And so absolutely keeping the landscape connected so that animals have the opportunity not only to move south to north, but also move elevationally up and also to different slopes and aspects in order to find that climate niche that um, is right for them, offer some opportunity for animals and plants to to be able to survive at this time. Um, And so at the course of scale, yeah, absolutely. You also asked, you know, what's what's happening in the Y2Y region? Mm-hmm. It's clear that fire regimes are totally changing, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, probably the most extreme you can look up in the boreal forests, and we're seeing more frequent fires. We're seeing much bigger fires. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, really concerning, not just from a climate adaptation perspective, but those particularly the peat moss boreal forests hold so much carbon. And I think one of the things that world doesn't know is that you know per square foot some of those um, those boreal forests have more carbon than any other forest in the world even the tropical forests mm-hmm. and when those things burn and they burn really hot we're losing a significant amount of carbon into the air which is then increasing the uh, the climate change over time and so part of you know what causes those fires is you know, the roads that are beginning to crisscross that region that are drying out the edges, um, allowing, you know, a spark of a, uh, from a car to light those fires. And so we, to me, it means we need to be increasingly careful and have large enough protected areas that if we do have something like a catastrophic fire, we haven't just lost all of the habitat, but that we actually have the potential for nature to recover. And so climate change is a significant challenge for for many, many species, right? We have things like um, endangered West Slope cutthroat trout. And as the water warms to higher and higher elevations, what we're seeing happen is non-native trout that can interbreed with cutthroat trout moving up like brook trout and brown trout and sort of taking over their habitat and sometimes interbreeding with them. And so um, we've got systems that are really a kind of at that verge of flipping because of climate change. Um, And, you know, you look at water projections or you look at species that are dependent on snow. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't spend a lot of time probably thinking about as humans, but animals like mountain goats actually need that snow to cool down and also to get away from insects. Caribou use snow as well. So what happens as our glaciers continue to decrease? What, how are those animals going to make it right? Mm -hmm. And these are real questions 
So I think climate change actually is one of the major threats in the Y2Y region. I also think that really it's about, you know, human activities and development. So Mm -hmm. the kinds of things that really stop animals are the developments. Um, So it could be anything from natural resource extraction to development of communities in places that are essential for wildlife. Like I live in Canmore. Canmore is kind of like putting a cork in a bottle of wine, um, right? Um, the, the Bow Valley is one of the few east-west mm. corridors. It's a low elevation valley. So it's particularly important in the winter for so many wildlife species. Mm. And then there's this community that happens <laughs> to be basically almost all the way across the valley. Mm. So there's very few opportunities for wildlife to get around it and to really effectively use the larger valley and move from one protected area to the other. And so right now, this community of Canmore is debating a wildlife corridor and how wide it needs to be and how much development can happen, really pushing wildlife up on slopes where we know Mm. they're less likely to travel. Mm. Um, So any kind of development can be problematic. And I think the other piece of it is sort of um, human intolerance or humans not knowing how their behavior affects wildlife. So there's sort of two subcategories there. So in terms of intolerance, it's people see a predator and they just shoot it, right? Mm. If, you know, in those kinds of cases, what that does is it creates isolated populations. So you know, right now, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, part of the southernmost anchor of the Y2Y region is really pretty isolated. It's, um, we've been working on the we is the big we, many, many groups on reconnecting grizzly bears from Canada down to that Yellowstone population and maybe even over to the largest wildlands of Idaho, um, the central Idaho wildlands area, um, because the bears in Yellowstone are not as genetically diverse as Mm -hmm. the more Northern bears. Um, And so um, the problem there is, is tolerance, right? So people often shoot those grizzly bears and it's hard to get them across the more humanized landscape. Mm -hmm. Then there's the, just people don't know that their activities are impacting wildlife. So I'm reminded of, I just um, went and hiked, Johnson Canyon and Banff with my 13 year old daughter mm-hmm. in the winter. It was wonderful. And right now there's an endangered swift that breeds there and they're really strict. And it's great to see that about where humans can go, really ensuring that people stay on the trail, that they're not interrupting that breeding of that endangered species. And unfortunately, sometimes people are curious or they don't follow the rules or maybe they create user-made trails So for example, Mm -hmm. we're doing some recreational research right now, looking at where are all the different trails in two study areas in Alberta and in British Columbia. And it turns out there's a lot of trails that nobody knew were there that people Mm -hmm. have just created. And that's not necessarily a problem, but it But it often is because it might be right through critical habitat for an endangered species, or it Mm -hmm. might run through a river um, right where cutthroat trout or bull trout are trying to to do their breeding and muddy up that water and and affect their success. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
those are the kinds of behaviors that we also really need to think about, be aware of, and be planning for in the conservation community, like the people who are doing the management of those lands. Yeah, that maybe leads nicely into the idea of the potential negative effects of connectivity where, you know, obviously there's focal species that can benefit immensely from connected landscapes. But when you have, you know, recreational land users using those landscapes as well, you have these things like the flow of non-native and invasive species facilitated by their movement in some cases. Mm. Does Y2Y have sort of direct engagement with the science of those types of potentially negative effects of connectivity? Or, you know, is that more of an academic question, I guess? <laughs> I've written several books and, and including chapters on uh, the potential negative effects of connectivity. And it is really important when um, thinking about where to design a wildlife corridor, for example, to think about those potential negatives. So, um, Going back to that cutthroat trout example, um, I worked with Brad Shepard, who um, was with the Wildlife Conservation Society in Montana. And part of what we were doing was actually trying to create disconnectivity so that those invasive trout Mm -hmm. couldn't interbreed with the cutthroat trout. Mm -hmm. So that would be an example where we're actually not promoting connectivity. There, there actually there's a lot of academic literature talking about the potentials of uh, invasive species or talking about predators sitting at the end waiting for their prey to get through. Mm. Actually, we, we've, now there's been several studies saying that there's no evidence of that happening. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I think it's important to consider those. In most cases, most landscapes that were naturally connected before humans came in are going to do well to be reconnected. Mm -hmm. I think one of the issues is just managing people, right? So in Canmore, where I'm living, the the corridors also have recreational trails. And there, you know, now that there's increased humans using those trails and they're now using them, for example, later and later into the night, they go out with headlamps and, you know, what's sort of shocking to see as you'll see on the cameras, you'll see a person running by and literally 30 seconds later, you'll see the mountain lion right behind the person. It's <laughs> alarming a little bit. Um, but it's about managing those spaces. And so in some places, you know, you'll see corridors, for example, being accessible one time of the year and being closed off another time of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, or we see a lot of uh, what we call lay down fences that facilitate things like elk migrations so that elk aren't getting caught up in livestock fencing Mm. so that during that migration period when the livestock are elsewhere, they can just lay the fences down and pretty easily put them back up at low cost to the ranchers so that they're not constantly repairing their fences, but also it makes it easier for wildlife. So it's about knowing what kinds of issues could be conflicts Mm -hmm. and then managing for those conflicts. Yeah, yeah. And I think that speaks to yeah, the a group like Y2Y having that multi-organizational decentralized type structure. I don't know, maybe that's the wrong word, but the, the the capacity to engage with multiple organizations at multiple scales, I think you're well positioned, as I said before. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is it's it's true um that we we are actually really well positioned and you know, I think locally sometimes, you know, we're Sometimes people don't know that we're engaged in projects because we're really supporting local entities to engage, you know, with ranching communities or urban communities. 
And then also, you know, we not only do we work locally and regionally, but we actually work in a targeted way nationally and internationally Mm -hmm. because we know that having those higher level enabling policies actually support the communities to get the work done on the ground that they want to advance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That leads into my next question, which is about, <laughs> again scaling up and thinking about that international level. Where you, so you were the lead author last year on a an IUCN, I guess, white paper. What kind of document would you call that? Yeah, it's an IUCN publication. Yeah. Okay, activity guidelines. Yeah, yeah. So congrats on that. It's a fantastic synthesis and just amalgamation of of all the things that are happening with connectivity at the global scale. So I wanted to ask you where we have these targets for protected areas internationally and globally, and these metrics. You know, in some cases they're flawed, where we're just thinking about the area conserved. I was wondering, thinking on connectivity, are there metrics or measures that are emerging as being reflective of success on the ground in terms of connectivity projects? Yeah. Oh, this is a topic I could talk about for three days. Are you ready? (laughs) Let's go. Let's go. (laughs) All right. I'll try and consolidate it a little. So those IUCN connectivity guidelines, first of all, I do have some gray hair now, and and that's because... (laughs) Separating hundreds of people from literally every continent except for Antarctica to provide input and actually agree upon what a conserved ecological corridor looks like mm-hmm. is hard work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think the really exciting thing is that the world realized that we needed this document and that we needed to come to agreement. So as an analogy, when we go to a protected area, whether it's in Canada or Belize or in Zambia, it satisfies a set of globally agreed upon criteria that the IUCN holds, right? So we know that a protected area is a protected area is a protected area. It satisfies a certain set of criteria and there are different kinds of protected areas, but they're all very clearly defined. Mm-hmm. And the problem with ecological corridors is that we've never tracked them, even for, for many places, um, we aren't tracking them at a national level, um, let alone a global level, and different people were defining them differently. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. some people wanted to define ecological corridors, for example, making the whole Y to Y region a ecological corridor. Well, it's really not. It's really protected areas with connectivity between those protected areas, right? And so what those guidelines do is for the first time ever, very clearly define what has to be achieved to be a conserved ecological corridor. Mm. And that's important both on the ground. Um, It's also important for governments. So we're seeing countries like Bhutan, Tanzania, Costa Rica, going forward with actually corridor legislation. And we do want to make sure that it's standardized over time. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And in fact, here in Canada, they have a, a target one connectivity group and they're sort of talking about how for the really the first time we're going to actually do connectivity for animals and plants across Canada. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that that's really standardized and, and effective. I think to date there, there, you know, when we look at global science, there's been a few reviews that sort of say, Oh, somewhere, you know, around 10%, nine to 11% of all of the protected areas in the world are connected. Well, 
that's what we call sort of a structural connectivity analysis. What that means is like, you have a protected area here and a protected area here, and maybe they both have trees and there's trees in between. So you assume that it's connected, Hmm. but does it function? Are people hunting in there? You can't tell what happens under that canopy. Mm -hmm. So we are working right now with protected area planet, uh, planets database. They're the people who track protected areas around the world to develop a database that would also track where the conserved corridors are because yeah, okay, nine to 11% of our, our protected areas are connected, which by the way is incredibly low and not good from mm-hmm. a conservation perspective. But how many of those areas are going to exist next year and how many of them are going to be bulldozed over? Mm-hmm. Um, and we really need to know that in order to prioritize where we're going to focus on connectivity conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what those guidelines do is sort of provide that higher level framework that can be used by any local community, regional community or nation who's endeavoring to move forward on connectivity. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So um, I guess maybe just like a, a couple of broader questions and maybe thinking a little about about the year that we've had and so many more people going out and enjoying nature and you know experiencing nature maybe for the first time like really getting out there do you have any yeah no I mean it's amazing except if you really want to book that campsite and you just can't get it But uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about like some advice you have for people who are, you know, just sort of venturing out and how to interact with with the landscape in a way that, you know, respects nature and and um, and protects these types of initiatives that are going on. Yeah, great question. Well, first of all, I too tried to book an Alberta campsite. I too tried to book a national parks campsite. And um, in both cases, on both days, they crashed. (laughs) Here's how I, here's how I interpret that. Gosh, it's so great that people want to be in nature. Mm. We value nature and we need more parks. Mm -hmm. That's the bottom line, right? People should be able to get their families into nature. We know it's good, good for people's health. We know it's good for nature to have that connection. So we do need more parks. So once people get out in nature, whether it's on a day hike or maybe it's camping, I think there's really some obvious things to think about. Um, One is to just be aware of one's own potential impact on wildlife um, and how can we minimize those, those while we can you know, minimize our footprint. So that might be, you know, keeping an area clean, don't leave trash. It might mean not going off trail and following sort of trails that are, are not designated trails because those have unintended impacts. Um, and it also, you know, one might think about coexistence. So not only do you not want to leave trash because it's not good for other people, but it's also bad for wildlife, particularly if there's food in that trash, it can, Um, cause animals to become sort of more uh, habituated to human food. But if people are in places, for example, where there are grizzly bears, get into a grizzly bear course and understand how to use bear spray. Um, It's a really good way to keep bears safe and to keep yourself safe. So those are a few tips. There's lots more. Um, I think, you know, going and talking to rangers or going to those 
uh, ranger educational opportunities with families at campgrounds, there's an opportunity to really learn a lot. And it's so fun. There's also tracking courses so you can learn. Even if you don't see animals, you can see, you can see on the ground who's been there and what they've been doing by their poop, by <laughs> the marks they leave on trees. Um, and it's just a, it's really, really fun to walk through the forest uh, looking for those signs and seeing who's there ahead of you. Mm -hmm. Is Y2Y engaged in any citizen science projects at all, using the people that are accessing these places increasingly? Uh, yeah. It seems like an opportunity for, you know, yeah. citizen science. Um, you know, it is an opportunity, and many of our partner organizations are using citizen science. Um, we, right now, are engaging with UNBC, the government of Alberta, and the government of BC, actually uh, using what we would call a passive method. So if you might have Strava on your phone or All Trails mm -hmm. or some of these apps, it kind of tells us generically where people are going across the landscape. And it's a new way to monitor how people are using any specific area. Um, and that information can then feed into better management of regions. So it's not necessarily actively using people, but passively using people. I think that citizen science is so important, or even just volunteerism on projects. So down right on the uh, BC-Idaho border, we were doing a restoration, and, and we had lots and lots and lots of people coming to plant 220,000 trees and to wow. identify Wow. endemic bees that endemic means the bees that are found nowhere else on the planet except for right there and mm -hmm. you know getting some of the training and those can be such enriching opportunities mm -hmm. amazing y2y sounds like you know a dream job for for young conservationists well there's lots of good science to to get done so come on out and and, and help us learn more about this system so that we can manage it better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Jody. It's been great talking to you. Really interesting conversation. Thank you both. I really appreciate the opportunity to share and, and uh, appreciate your questions too. Thanks, Jody. It was a pleasure. Mm -hmm.